Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the PA Path Podcast. Before we get started, we'd like to extend a special thank you to our episode sponsor, Exam Master. Today, we have the special privilege of speaking with Dr. Carl Garuba, who is a national leader and now Dean of the Dominican University of California School of Health and Natural Sciences in San Rafael, California. Dr. Garuba has his Master's of Physician Assistant Studies from Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and his Doctorate in Medical Science from the Lynchburg University. His clinical background includes groundbreaking research on several HIV clinical trials, as well as some experience in thoracic surgery and primary care in HIV medicine. Dr. Garuba's unique background as a certified public accountant and business analyst has supported the profession as he served as a director at large and treasurer for the Physician Assistant Education Association. The full list of his accomplishments is quite large and may be found on our website at papathpodcast.com. Carl, so good to see you again. Steph and I were really excited to get you on the podcast and hear about uh, your institution, Dominican University's uh, PA program up in the Bay Area. Uh, but but you have a really unique background that has contributed so much depth to the PA perfection. Um, and I think our audience would be interested to hear because there's uh, not many folks in our profession that we're aware of that happen to be a CPA, but also a PA. And that's a lot of initials. Um, so, so why don't you start by telling us about your path to becoming a PA? Well, first, thank you, Kevin and Steph, for inviting me. I'm honored to be here. This is uh, very exciting, and I'm happy to go over some things. And feel free to ask me questions uh, if if there's something that isn't clear. Um, so, I guess I do have a little bit of a different uh, path to medicine than some people. I started out as an accountant, as you said. I went to Duquesne University uh, in business, and I got my degree in business and accounting. And uh, it was really because coming off the 70s, uh, you know, with high unemployment and high inflation, you know, my parents were very concerned about a biology degree that I was actually interested in. So they said, why don't you consider business? You, there are so many opportunities out there. So I did. And I worked four years public accounting with Arthur Anderson. And then after four years, I left and I went to UPMC, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And I worked as a financial analyst and a budget manager for the medical school. That reignited my interest in the sciences and medicine. So I started preparing for MCATs because I thought I was going to med school. And then I met this PA. And I had no idea what a PA was. And so he said, why don't you shadow me? I said, oh, great idea, because I've been shadowing people for PT because I thought that I wanted to be a PT, but that didn't seem to work out so well. It really wasn't for me. And I realized after shadowing, that was a perfect fit. So I ended up getting into the PA school at Duquesne University in 93, and at that time, there were only 25,000 PAs when I graduated. So it was a very early profession, even, even back then, and early into the profession. And I knew that I wanted to do something that made a difference. And so at that time, I knew people who were dying of HIV. And it was, it, it, there was something that was just calling me to work in HIV. So I ended up getting a job in HIV research, clinical research. So I got to do clinical physicals 
And then I also ran a couple of studies. And some of the studies that we did were the original studies for the, for the cocktail for HIV that started in 95. So it was exciting to be involved in all that process. So I, after a while, I was kind of feeling like I was losing some of my skills. So I got wooed by a surgeon and went into thoracic surgery for two years, which I really enjoyed and I learned a lot, but I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do when the job opened up in primary care HIV medicine. And so that I did that for eight years and really loved it. And we had just gotten our electronic health record at that time, right at the end. And I was the super user in our clinic because I really enjoyed it. And they had asked me, they said, you know, would you be interested in a job as a systems analyst, you know, as part of this? And I said, oh, I don't know. That seems way out of my league. But I did it. And I did that for a couple of years. It was kind of fun. And uh, then I realized that I had really missed teaching. Uh, prior to that, I had done lectures at Chatham University every year. And I knew that I wanted to be a full-time teacher someday. So I called up the then interim director and the interim director uh, said, you know, we don't have any positions right now, but you know, there's always something that opens up. Two weeks later, she called me and said, a job opened up. Are you interested? It's clinical coordinator. I said, what is that? I don't really know what that is. I don't, I don't know anything about that. So I ended up getting a job three years. I worked as clinical coordinator. Then I went to full-time faculty and then I was, after our um, program director stepped down, I was asked to be the program director. And I said, absolutely not. I don't know anything about that job. I don't know accreditation. I don't think this is for me. And uh, the next day I changed my mind and said, I'll do it. I don't know why I changed my mind, but I'm sure glad I did. So during my time at Chatham, I wanted to get more involved in the PA profession. So I tried to get on the board of the NCCPA, but I wasn't chosen. And then I saw an advertisement for the finance committee of PAEA, and I thought, well, that seems to be a good match for me. So I applied. And at that time, Kevin was the treasurer. And I got on the finance committee, and that was really exciting and fun. And I felt like there was something I could really add to this. And I really enjoyed that. I did it for five years. And then in my last year, um, I met Karen Hills and she said to me, why don't you run for the board? And prior to that, Kevin had asked me to run for treasurer, but I didn't think I knew enough to be able to be treasurer. This is coming and, from the CPA on the committee. Come on. <laughs> and then I said to Karen, Karen, I'm not board material. I don't, I don't know that much. You know, she's like, yes, you do. Give your, you know, give it a chance. So I ended up running for director at large and I got it. So I did that for two years. And then I ran as treasurer because I, I felt more confident that I could do that role. And I loved that for two more, for six years. And then my last two, and then my last year, they asked me to stay on just for continuity on the board. So that was great. So I had sort of a two final years. Before we go into into a little bit more depth on work, your your professional career, Carl, I just want to take one second to talk about that board experience because I remember when you came on the finance committee. You know, I was covering. I think I covered for one or two years for the previous treasurer, Charlie Brackage, who had uh, resigned 
I think he had a military engagement or something. And uh, so, you know, I what I was taught by Patrick Knott, who was my mentor towards the board, you know, we all have somebody that says, hey, you should really think about this, was the finance committee is the perfect place to serve because every other part of the organization comes to finance for money. So you get a chance to get a much broader depth of uh, understanding of the entire organization that way. Was that your experience? Yes, that's an excellent point. I thought that it was, and this is what I tried to tell people once I was on the committee, when I was trying to get other people on the committee, because they just thought you were sitting there being counted the whole time. And I'm like, no, this is strategic planning mm-hmm. because you're actually looking at the entire organization, all of the finances and trying to match finances with um, our strategic plan, our goals and all of those things. And you're questioning things and it's exciting and fun. But you're absolutely right. I learned everything I knew about the organization through the finance committee before I even got on the board. So I felt much more informed on the board because of it. So yeah, that's a great point. Thank you for for bringing that up. Kevin actually continued that mentorship for me because when I was on the board as director at large and Kevin was president and he was making committee assignments for the board members, he also said the same thing to me. He said, you know, you really... If you want to have a deeper understanding of the functioning of a uh, of the organization, um, we need to put you on the finance committee. If you you know if you have uh, an eye towards leadership in on this board, we it's a it's a skill set that you need. So, and I I had the same experience. It was an excellent way to really understand the deeper um, kind of the a deeper understanding of the of the functioning of the association. And you know it's interesting that you brought that up because there was a a procedure or something that we followed in the past where the president-elect always came to the finance committee. And I don't know if that's still happening. I, I don't, I don't, I want to say, I don't think it's happening anymore, but that's something that I thought was really helpful, especially for people coming on to their presidency. So I'm glad you brought that up. At first I couldn't figure out why the past or the, the uh, president-elect was on the finance committee. I'm thinking, trying to, I was trying to figure out what the reasoning was, but it was so smart. It really was. Yeah, it was interesting talking to Don Peterson a couple of weeks ago in that he he talked about what the mentality of the presidency was back with APAP and in er, early days of PAEA perhaps, which was you know kind of looking for something that could make the profession better that the president would champion. And I think it was after uh, Dave Asprey, Patrick Knott, Tony Miller and all those guys transitioned APAP from the academy into PAEA that we started to really think more strategic and the presidency became more of a, a, a leadership role of kind of ensuring that the strategic plan was being met. But I, I, I agree with you. I don't know where PAEA is at with that these days, but I think having some experience on the finance committee just gives you a good sense of your obligation as a fiduciary member of the organization. Yeah, it really does. And if if you remember, um, Kevin, when I was on the finance committee, we started off being um, very operational on that committee. And then we became very strategic over time. And that was exciting because we we sort of were down in the numbers at first. And then we were up in the overall view of everything and how it matched up with our strategic plan and our mission. So that was very exciting. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think the same thing can be said at the program level too. I think having faculty 
involved in the finances of the program is a really um, helpful way for faculty to really understand the functioning of the of the program and as a part of the greater university system as well. So, Carl, before we before we move on with kind of your path through your profession and kind of where you are right now, and before we get too far removed for it from it, I would like to jump back a little bit to um, your experience in the mid '90s um, in HIV research and you know the some of the work that you did at that time. I mean, that was really peak peak time for the for HIV to be. It came on the forefront along that time. There was a lot of fear a lot of anxiety, um, and there was just so much we didn't know about HIV at that time. And it and it really felt like, you know, for those who were diagnosed with with having HIV infection, it, it felt like a death sentence. And so can you talk a little bit about kind of what it was like to be involved in, um, you know, in HIV medicine at that time and in the research that you were doing and and maybe even a little bit about how that is how that has evolved over, t- over time? Sure. Uh, it's such an evolution, right? Um, so when I was in PA school, this is when people were at the height of dying in the 90s, right? And so <clears throat> I had watched friends and other people I know pass away. And in my last semester, I asked if I could go on an HIV elective. And I actually had to be interviewed on this elective because they wanted to make sure that I was an okay person to be around their patients because they were so well protecting of their patients. And so um, I learned so much and I spent a lot of time at hospitals caring for people who were dying. That's basically what I did when I was in school. And then when I got out and got this job, we started noticing that some of the protocols were really working and people were going from like one or two T cells to about 300 T cells, and they were going off medication to keep them from getting opportunistic infections. So it was an exciting time to be in HIV medicine because of the transition from death to living again. And I have, I've had so many, um, I've had so many experiences with patients who were pretty much on their deathbed, and they basically came back to life and there's nothing more exciting than to watch that and it was it was celebrating it was exciting and like i said that's what kept me in it for as long as i was in it and once people were doing better and you could see that medications were working although there were side effects people were doing really well and it felt good to do something very positive to a community that had just been destroyed over time so that was very exciting. Back in early '80s, um, I was a surgical tech in the OR, and there were there were just precautions. We, we, there was such fear, and, uh, and and basically the fear of the unknown back then as healthcare providers. And you talk about how far we've come. Uh, it, you know, today, well, back then, the first cocktail and some of the medications that patients had to take, it was a complicated dance, as I recall. Uh, and now today, it's a very a much more simple process. It's uh, no longer the uh, the the kind of mortality issues aren't involved as they were back then. So maybe talk just a little bit about that evolution of treatment and kind of the hope in the community now, because you were you were alluding to how it devastated communities at the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's a great question. So so I would say that when I first started out, we had AZT. 
And that was pretty much all we had. We were giving people toxic levels of it. So people were getting sick and some were dying just of the medication. So then finally we started adding, you know, we, we would find other, what they call nucleoside FRTIs, nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. And those nucleosides, new ones, were not as toxic as the old ones. And we learned how to dose them differently. Then once we got to that point, we realized that we needed to attack the virus from different angles. So instead of being a nuke, we had non-nucleosides. We had prote we started developing protease inhibitors. We started inviting, you know, entry inhibitors and integrase inhibitors and all these different ways that the virus has ways of getting around medications. And what we found out over time is that if we can suppress it, from two or three different ways, we can stop the virus from continuing to infect cells. And that was a big deal. And actually, um, and most people don't know this, but there were five main HIV research centers around the United States federally. One was in LA, one was in Florida, one was in Pittsburgh, where I was, one was in New York, and I'm trying to remember where the other one was, uh, might've been San Francisco. And that's the, they were the first five epicenters because what happened was people often came back home to die. And that's how Pittsburgh got involved because a lot of people left Pittsburgh, came back home to be with family to die. And so it became an epicenter of HIV research, clinical research, especially. And one of the researchers that I worked with was one of the people who developed the theory around viral load and how increased viral load actually led to worse outcomes. And decreasing viral load to undetectable levels was actually saving lives. So yeah. that was really exciting. How, how incredibly interesting that we learned so much. Like one of, one of the big researchers back then was Anthony Fauci yeah. in infectious disease. And we learned so much about how to navigate around viruses. And then fast forward to 2018 or 2020, 2021, and we're okay. dealing with the same kind of theoretical framework yep. that the the early work of HIV helped us get, you know, save a lot of lives during COVID. And all of the HIV research that was done didn't just help HIV, as you're as you're pointing out. It helped cancer care. It helped other infectious diseases. I mean, we learned so much about everything because of all the work. And it turned out that some of the medications we use for HIV, well, maybe they didn't work so great for HIV, but boy, they worked for hepatitis C and maybe some other illnesses. Yeah. And so that was exciting to see. And I was also, well, a lot of our patients were dual diagnosed with oftentimes hep C or other devastating diseases. And to watch people get better on HIV or on hep C treatment was also an exciting thing to do within our cohort of patients. Yeah. There, there, it just goes to prove that, you know, regardless of the illness that's out there, putting money into something that's new is going to pay dividends for generations to come and all these other diseases. So that's a really great point, Carl. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break for a word from our episode sponsor, Exam Master. Exam Master works with physician assistant educators, providing tailored solutions to help improve admissions, retention, student progression, and board pass rates. 
Exam Master's Physician Assistant College Admission Test, the PACAT, is an entrance exam designed to help PA admissions departments measure applicants' knowledge in key prerequisite science subjects critical to on-time progression. Recent educational research at St. Elizabeth University's PA program demonstrates a strong correlation between the PACAT exam and students' first semester performance. Access the research report at pa-cat.com and click on the Resources tab. And be sure to meet us at the PAEA conference in October. So Carl, let's go back to uh, your professional path. We kind of jumped back in time a little bit to the, to the 90s, but let's, let's go on to what you're doing now and your time at Dominican University in California. Sure. Um, well, it was exciting. Uh, so my partner and I decided that we wanted to move to San Francisco for the last 25 years, and we finally made it happen in 2016. So it, it was our ultimate dream location. And I was hired as the associate director of the Dominican University of California PA program. And during that time, we were literally just starting to get the program off the ground. We hadn't even had students yet when I first started. And then we got students in the fall of 2017. And in 2019, the director stepped down and she left. And I was actually promoted to director at that point. And we went through two provisional accreditation cycles and we ended up getting continuing accreditation in 2022. And that for me was a big deal because I had never been involved with a developing program. So it was an exciting thing for me just to learn what it's like to bring in a developing program. Uh, it, it was always something I said, oh, I don't know if I can, if I have the energy to tackle that. But once you're in it and you use the, the skills that you learn previously, um, it's really not bad at all. And um, it, for me, it was, it was really fun and exciting. And I had a great staff and faculty to work with, and that really makes all the difference. So Carl, it, as a, as a fellow program director of a developing program, I I've shared your experience. It's been just a tremendously rewarding ex, uh, experience to, to start from the ground up and, and really build something. So tell me a little bit about your experience in developing a brand new program and drawing upon previous experience from other programs. How, you know, how were you able to kind of take the things that you knew from before, but really reimagine something new and and apply kind of old experiences and tried and true things that you know work in education and apply those to what kind of what you know about today's learners and about how medicine functions today compared to maybe how your curriculum was designed for or how medicine functioned 10 years ago or 15 years ago in, in today's learners and today's healthcare environment. How did, how did you, how did you kind of apply those, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't want to say old skills, but your existing skills to, to, you know, your, your program and how it functions today. So I would say that when I first started in the program at Dominican, the program was already somewhat designed, at least as a shell. So what I what we did then was work within that shell to create curriculum and to create an experience for students that would be different from where I came. So uh, in my previous program, we did problem-based learning. 
uh, it was about 80 to 90% problem-based learning. So we didn't do a lot of lectures. So this was a big transition for me, but I had done some lectures in the previous program, a lot of cardiology lectures, because we did add some lectures in that on more complicated topics. So some of that work that I did in problem-based learning, I brought to this school. And this school was all, it, it was literally all lectures. And I said, you know, can we, you know, not everybody learns well from lectures. Sometimes people learn really well from having cases and talking about cases and working through cases and learning on their own and then coming back and being able to teach someone else what they've learned. So that was exciting for me to actually bring some of those aspects of what I had done previously into this. Now, we didn't turn it into a PBL program, but we incorporated a lot of the PBL learning into the program. And it helps students who just struggle with sitting at lectures and learning that, who, who just struggled with learning that way. So, and I, I think the other thing was, <laughs> and this is funny, but perseverance. I learned perseverance from my previous program because when I took the job as program director, we were on probation and we had a lot of issues that had to be resolved. And, you know, we had taken some daring steps, but probably could have done them a little differently and, and would have been in a different place. But I think that I learned that if you just keep working at it, and you follow things that people have taught you and ways that you have taught yourself that you can be successful in this. And I tell people that all the time because I always think that I'm not going to be able to do something like, oh, I don't think I can tackle that. I'm just not sure I have the skills to tackle that. When actually I have them and I just have to believe that and this is what I've told people a lot when they when they consider like, oh, should I take this job as a program director? Should I take this job as a chair? Yes. And here's how you can help yourself through that process. Because for me, it was very scary. And trying to navigate all of that and knowing that everything fell on me, if it worked or didn't work, was pretty daunting. Yeah, having that buck stop on your desk is uh, is a little daunting. <laughs> it sure is. And so now what I try to do, so we have a new, since I, you had mentioned that I had uh, received a promotion to Dean, and prior to that, I have been really trying to work with our new program director, who's never been a program director, but she has excellent skills. She has excellent leadership skills. She's thoughtful in her approach. She's she's calm and calculated and cool. And she's just doing a beautiful job. But again, she needed some of that mentoring to say, you got this. You can do this. And that really helped me a lot. So since you mentioned the deanship now, Carl, I mean, you're in this role where it sounds like your own uh, pedagogy about problem-based learning resulted in your leadership as program director for the program to get yourself and the program back on track. But now you're kind of in this unique role where you're leading multiple programs at the School of Health and Natural Sciences. So what's been different for you? What, uh, how much do you still get back to the PA school? And you know, what are you enjoying about the job so far? That would not have been possible had I 
not gotten my doctor. And I wasn't, I wasn't sure I needed to get a doctor. And I, I was like, mm, you know, baby, I'll get this. I'm not really sure. And I found the DMSC program, which I really love. It really spoke to me. And it spoke to a lot of what I really enjoyed about what I was doing and what I wanted to do in the future. And one of the goals I had was to hopefully be an associate dean or a dean someday. And that was, I was developing that goal while I was in my doctorate program. So that really worked well for me. And uh, in 2021, my dean, in the fall of 2021, my dean just said that she was retiring. And so I thought, well, now's my chance. Let's, let's give this a shot. Other things have worked and maybe it's time to try this. And so uh, I took the job in July of 2022. So I've been in the job just over a year and I absolutely love it. And I'm now responsible for five different departments, including PA. And it's exciting. It's fun. It's different. Every department is different, has its own idiosyncrasies and has its own flavor and personality. And I have really been enjoying getting to learn how different programs function because what I learned from one program, I can then help another program and say, hey, they've really been successful doing things like this. Have you thought about that? Or would you like to talk to them? Or maybe the three of us should sit down and talk about how we can do something maybe similar with your program where you're struggling in this particular area. So it it's exciting for me because I'm not just affecting one program anymore. I'm affecting many programs. And I get to interface with all the other programs at the university. So the the Dean of Business and the Dean of Liberal Arts and Education and I, the three of us get together several times a month to talk about how we can share different things that we've learned and how we can help one another and our and our programs to, to succeed. Because it's not just about my school, it's about our university and all of us succeeding together. And that to me is just absolutely exciting. I have to believe that you're You've had the perfect kind of resume for this because your your CPA experiences, your your business analytic experiences, your research experiences in, in HIV medicine, your leadership experiences at PAEA have all kind of put all the pieces of the puzzle together to help you succeed in this. Thank you. I'll tell you, um, about eight years after I worked as CPA, I said, why did I do this? This was the biggest mistake of my life. Why didn't I go into medicine from the beginning? And I didn't realize how much I learned from that and how much it can use my background moving forward. If it weren't for that background, I wouldn't have had probably the same opportunities that were really afforded me throughout my career. So it was a way to bring both careers together. And that was my ultimate goal was to finally find a way to bring both careers together because I still like the business world. And I still like accounting, but I know it's kind of odd. Most people, you don't hear say I like accounting, but I really did. <laughs> it's kind of fun to be able to use that in my current job. And, uh, you know, I've been involved with a lot of searches for business and uh, vice president positions because of it. So it's really helped me to 
be more of who I can be and what I can offer to the university. Yeah. I recently, I had the chance, I've been starting to get involved in all the dean's meetings at University of Arizona. And I, I think for me, one of the biggest surprises, which I don't know why it was, but it's just sometimes there's this, um, this silo thinking that deans of colleges are kind of these, you know, leaders that don't get, you know, you, you, you've been at the other level. So you think, oh, they don't get us. They don't understand what we need. They're not supporting us. And when you get into that office, you start to see one, all of my colleagues here at UVA are, are incredibly bright and thoughtful human beings who really want to do the right thing. And they're, they're doing exactly what you're talking about. They're trying to navigate the situation at hand, either budgetarily or politically or what have you, to try to come up with a good solution that supports their students and their, their faculty. So I think um, it's a really cool position to be in where you, you, know, where you have the skill set you have and you can kind of help navigate around these challenges that do crop up at universities from time to time with the humanistic and holistic heart that you have to make the world a better place. So I'm, I'm really excited for you, Carl. Thank you. It's a way for me to be creative also, right? Because we have limited resources, all of us, but especially smaller programs have limited resources. And so it's a way to think like, okay, I know that I, I'm not going to be able to get more money, but what can I do with what I currently have, the resources I currently have to make the most use out of them and to be most efficient with them. So that's a that's pretty much the that's the most fun that I have. Plus, in my job, I've enjoyed just meeting all the staff and faculty that are at my school. So last year I spent six months with half hour interviews of every single person in the school. So I could get to know them, get to know the research, get to know what kind of work they do as staff members and if they like their job and if there's anything that I can do to try to help them. You know, some of them said, well, you know, I haven't had an opportunity for promotion. And so I sat down with their chair and I said, you know, this person brought this up. Have they ever brought it up to you? No, they really didn't. I said, did you ever ask? <laughs> and they're like, no, I didn't ask. I'm like, that's a great question to ask them. You know, what can we do to keep you here? We don't want you to ever leave. Those kind of things. So that, I love that part of the job. It's kind of like that retention interview that you do before somebody gives notice that they're leaving. Exactly. Yeah. Let's prevent it. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's absolutely. Smart. Keep, keep good people. Well, Carl, tell us a little bit about the Dominican PA program. Um, I know it's one of several Dominican PA programs around the country, but uh, tell us a little bit about your program and how it's structured and maybe what you're looking for in an applicant and what an applicant might be able to do to make themselves a... Uh, competitive applicant for your program. Sure. Uh, so it's Dominican University of California, and there is another Dominican University. I think it's in Illinois or Indiana. Um, yeah, Chicago and, suburbs. You're right. Okay. And so um, we are not related to that university. Everybody thinks we are, but we're not. <laughs> so sometimes the students get a little bit confused. So make sure that if you want to come to Dominican University of California, that you actually look for that one, not the other. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought that up because I always forget to tell people to watch out for that. But our program, I think, is a pretty unique program. We really strive to get students who are first-gen students. But we have lots of we have, we have a nice diversity of students. We have we have ethnic and racial diversity. We have, which, you know, California affords us, right? 
not every state has that same opportunity or city has that same opportunity. But here in California, we really do have a lot of diversity that way. And that's exciting. But we have diversity of background. And, you know, what what one of the missions at our school is to really, I mean, the mission at our school and one of the goals at our school is to really help to elevate people who are first gen. We have a lot of migrant farmers and we have children of migrant farmers and we are trying to get them up to where everybody else is. You know, we're trying to bring that equality back to our area and we want them to go back to their communities to help to offer um, services back to the communities they, you know, and serve those communities where they came from because we know that people trust people who look like them, talk like them, and come from the same background as them. So that's what's a little bit, I think, a little bit different about our program from some programs. But, you know, we're a 28-month program. Uh, the first 16 months is didactic, and the last 12 months is clinical. It's mostly lecture, but we do add in a lot of case-based and problem-based learning to help to emphasize certain things. But the nice thing about the program, which I don't see in every program, is we have continuity through the curriculum. So if you are learning about headaches, so you're on the head, right? We're going to do anatomy of the head, physiology of the head. We're also going to do neuro at that time. And then all the diseases that are associated with it. And then all the medications that are associated with it. So, so um, it helps to reinforce learning that way. Then we have a class that helps to put all the cases together and helps students start to figure out how to diagnose a patient, right? And so we try to take it all the way through before they get out onto rotation so that they're already starting to be comfortable thinking that way. That integrated systems-based approach, you know, I've taught in both curricular styles. And, you know, we really find that students, when you co-locate all of the knowledge around a certain body system, they really find it very beneficial to be able to kind of connect the dots. And, you know, from understanding the biological agents that might affect that, you know, that system and the, the how the anatomy and the physiology, we always use the cardiac system as an example when we're talking about this. At the same time, you're learning the structure of the heart. You're also learning the electrophysiology of the heart. And, you know, and then you kind of can take that to, okay, well, then we know how it normally works. What happens when this breaks or that breaks? And then that helps them understand, you know, the pathophysiology of the disease of that, of that health system or of that, sorry, of that body system. So it's uh, really, I, I, students, at least in my experience, students find that very beneficial. And it answers that checkbox for accreditation on sequencing really well. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Breadth and depth and sequencing. Exactly. <laughs> So, Carl, you're located just north of uh, the Bay Area, so I would imagine there's a lot of wonderful rotation opportunities for your students as well. Can you talk a little bit about the clinical side of your training? Sure. So, we are located 10 miles north of San Francisco, and uh, we're in the North Bay. We have several, so Kaiser Permanente is um, one of the providers in our area that provide many, many rotations for our students. We also have several other larger, so we have Sutter, and we have a few other um, Catholic institutions that provide uh, rotation sites for our students. In addition, we have some small independents as well, 
and then we have some small outpatient areas. We have a few FQHCs in our area, but we we are trying to get into a few more, and that's one of our goals because we think that's really beneficial for our students, for student learning, um, and for them just to see things that they may not have ever seen before. So it's an exciting thing for us and something that we are really trying to work toward. Uh, I was trying to think if there was anything else. So the way that our program works, so we have seven required rotations and two electives. And the two electives, they are able to choose anything from the requireds if they want to do more of that. And if not, we have a plethora of elective rotations from which to choose. And it's pretty exciting for our students. What's exciting for me is actually going to a facility, say I'm there, maybe I'm there as a patient and I run into our students there or I run into a graduate there. And that's really exciting. Or for example, our president had broken a lip and one of our PA graduates took care of her in the ortho office. And she just couldn't wait to come back to say like how professional they were and what a great job they did. It was so exciting. So we're a smaller community. Now we do have rotation sites all over the country because right now you kind of have to, right? To make sure that you have enough. But we do have a lot of local ones and we have a lot in Southern California as well. And uh, the students have really enjoyed it because what we've tried to do is to teach them that staying in your area is fine. And for some students, that works really well for them. But the more diverse experiences they get in different areas of the country, they learn how people practice in different areas of the country and uh, the opportunities that are afforded them through these different experiences, that they can learn so much more if they're able to travel. Well, Carl, this has been just an excellent opportunity to not only catch up with you because we're, again, long-term friends, not old. We're not old. We are long-term <laughs> friends. <laughs> I know. But, I miss uh, you too. <laughs> I know. We miss you too. So we always like to wrap things up by allowing people to just kind of either jump in with some words of advice or so if you had anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't have a chance to touch upon, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? I was thinking about this because I, I thought, you know, the one thing that I want to say is don't be afraid to take a chance and take an opportunity because I think oftentimes that our fear holds us back from doing things that we might have tried otherwise. And you're never going to grow until you take those chances. And so please take a chance. It's exciting. It's fun. And you'll learn so much from it. Well, thank you very much, Carl. It's great to see you, as Steph said, and we wish you and your team at Dominican University of California the very best. Thank you both so much. Great talking to you. Well, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Carl Garuba, for his time and insights that he provided. We also want to thank him for his service to the profession. His clinical and leadership background have left a strong example for all of us to follow and admire. We would also like to extend a special thanks to our episode sponsor, Exam Master. Tune in next time as we continue the conversations with our PA colleagues and leaders around the world.